Welcome to another episode of The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Deputy Editor Micah Utrecht, joined by staff writer Megan Day. What's up, Megan? Hey, Micah. What's up? That's a good question. I think that we are at a really critical juncture politically, and I feel, um, you know, uh, pretty, pretty, pretty strange about it. How do you feel? I, I feel definitely that America is at a crossroads, 100%. Wow, that's really powerful. Go on. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> we're just a couple of days ahead of the election here, and I don't know, I was, I, I have these sort of lingering feelings from 2016, which is like, things could go wrong, all the polls are wrong, like, we're about to have another nightmare bestowed upon us, then I'm hearing people say, actually, like, the, the margins are overwhelming, that there's, uh, there's really very little chance that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris don't pull this thing out. And then we have this conversation, which we're going to get to in a second, that we just have with Jane McAlevey. And Jane is a little uh, more bearish than bullish on uh, Biden's, or not Biden's chances, but on whether or not Trump will try to pull some shenanigans or will, uh, you know, win the Electoral College vote, but lose the popular vote. I mean, all these things as possibilities. It's uh it's quite a it's quite a time, and it's it's like not it's it's not a normal election. I mean, like we, as we've discussed on this show, like it's th- things are really really dire on so many fronts, and it's just I I I feel like I'm getting a tug of war of my emotions, both in the terms of the outcome of the election and in terms of how much is at stake. I do think that there are a couple of scenarios that we need to be um, worried about. In particular, the first one is just a basic discrepancy between the popular vote and the electoral college total, which I think is is quite possible. Jane makes a case for it in the conversation that we had. Um, and we've certainly seen it happen before. So there's there's no reason that it, that it couldn't happen now, especially because uh, as the as the sort of parties, you know, develop, you know, contemporary bases, right? Because the party's bases are sort of always shifting with various realignments. Um, but the contemporary bases lo- are such that the Electoral College actually really privileges the Republican Party over the Democratic Party, which is why we have seen three times recently um, the popular vote differ from the Electoral College vote in close presidential races and Democrats come out, um, or rather two times recently and potentially a third, Democrats come out as the losers in these scenarios. Um, so this is very plausible. Another another possibility is that it sort of looks like that's going to happen and then, the, and then the right uses the, the, the potential for that happening as a pretext to launch a pressure campaign against various, you know, state um legislative bodies and you know um goes moves through the courts and so on and and basically pulls some hijinks to try to stop um, the remaining mail-in um ballots from being counted and so on in both of these scenarios so the second scenario is often referred to as stealing the election like if if they do skullduggery then um then the election will have been stolen i would argue that the first scenario actually also constitutes stealing the election because the Electoral College is a undemocratic and counter-majoritarian institution. It does seem that uh, people are really wising up to this fact, and I think that the legitimacy of an Electoral College win and a popular vote loss is going to be much more in question this time, especially because the hatred for Trump is incredibly extreme, left of center, um, it's going to be much more in question this time than it has than it was in 2016 and than it was in 2000. Um, so basically, we're looking at um, not only potential um, for an electoral college popular vote discrepancy, but we're also looking at a potential for um, mass protest in response to that discrepancy and that's pretty much what our conversation with with jane today is about you and i actually wrote columns that are basically about this making the same argument that we did not discuss ahead of time but but folks can read both uh, megan's and jacobin and mine and novara that uh, explore this possibility unsurprisingly even though we didn't coordinate what we were writing uh we do come to the same conclusion which is that I mean, as we get into in this conversation, nobody who is listening to this podcast has any love for Joe Biden. Everybody understands what is wrong with Joe Biden, uh, that he is like literally one of the worst of the of the neoliberal wing of the Democratic Party, which is the dominant wing of the Democratic Party. But if we find ourselves in one of these kinds of situations, I mean, leftists need to stand up for for basic democratic principles we know the shortcomings of our democratic system our small d democratic system uh right now under capitalism we know all that stuff but like leftists should not allow a system in which you can lose the popular vote 
by millions and yet still win the presidential election. This is a, as you said, it's an anti-majoritarian system. It's a, a system that has roots in, in slavery. It's, it's like, it's, it's one of our, the many aspects of our political institutions uh, that are designed to frustrate the popular will. It's why we can't have nice things. And socialists should uh, join protests that say that we cannot continue living like this. We cannot go on like this. Uh, we, we have to stop it. We have to demand that we get rid of, at the very least, this awful institution known as the Electoral College so that we can move on to a sort of further democratization of society. Uh, and, you know, that's that's the essential piece of our project about uh, building socialism in our time. I think also that in 2016, the, the frustration about the Electoral College, it got drowned out by this conversation about Russian interference, you know, and all of the kind of things that the Democratic Party did to actually displace its own responsibility also ended up drowning out the critique of the Electoral College, which is really a lost opportunity and a shame because there were there were mass protests in early 2017. It's just that they did not focus on this incredibly undemocratic and really important feature of our democracy, which, by the way, as I wrote in my column, is like people tend to think of the Constitution as this like carefully and meticulously and ingeniously designed document. And every single feature of it is regarded to be completely sacred. And also, if you remove one of them, then it throws the whole thing off balance and you're just going to ruin this like beautiful temple to democracy that the the, the the founders created for us. Um, the truth of the matter is that the Electoral College was literally relegated to like a styles committee. They like couldn't decide how to how to decide on the president. And they were like, they created a committee and they were like, you figured out. And they implemented it as like a stopgap and they planned on re replacing it. And that replacement has not yet come. I mean, the replacement time is due and there's no better opportunity to agitate for its replacement than the third time, if, that, if this comes to pass, that it has let down the American people and blatantly and overtly subverted the popular will. So obviously socialists have a responsibility to take advantage of that, regardless of your feelings about Joe Biden. Well, in summary, Constitution sucks. Uh, you know, shut the fuck up about Russia. And if anything uh, crazy happens in, in uh, after Tuesday, which... Whether, even if, you know, the, there are many different ways in which crazy shit could happen after Tuesday, uh, but what, whatever undemocratic crazy shit happens after Tuesday, uh, socialists should, uh, should be in the streets to say that we need some very basic democratic measures to determine who our president is going to be, not the in, insane ones that we have, and, and also not let the, the right sort of run the board uh, with the kind of stuff that we talk about in our conversation with uh, Jane McAlevey. Uh, the stuff that the right has done in the past, uh, you know, everything from uh, voter suppression to uh, what they pulled in Florida in 2000 uh, to all the rest of it. Uh, so we talk about all of that with uh, Jane McAlevey, a name that uh, will hopefully be familiar to our listeners. Jane is a uh, labor strategist and writer. Uh, she has written three books. Uh, we talk about a piece that we recently ran from her in Jacobin that is a reprint of the introduction to her book about Florida and Miami-Dade County in the year 2000 uh, and the Bush v. Gore uh, campaign. Uh, she's also got an essay that we talk about in uh, the New York Review of Books that is also on this topic, which I will link to both of those uh, in the show notes. And here's our conversation with Jane McAlady. Jane, welcome. Great to be here. So let's start, before we talk about the current election, which is mere days away, I want to get to it by way of this piece from you that we recently republished in Jacobin that is the intro to your first book, Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, which is about the 2000 election and what you saw in Miami-Dade County. So can you just go through some of those basics and uh, what, what, what you saw there and what you saw go wrong for the Democrats? I can, yeah. I mean, it was actually all of Southern Florida. Um, so essentially, you know, in 2000, the scenario, you know, the setting is like the evening, we're all watching the news um, and something begins to go wrong in Florida. And literally they began to declare, oh, Gore won. Oh, Bush won. Oh, Gore. for people who weren't like alive or paying attention to TV at that moment, which could be a lot of people, uh, it was kind of terrifying, like literally watching people stammering, like who, who won Florida? And then, you know, chaos begins. So 
I was at the time on the senior organizing staff of the national AFL-CIO. It just started a couple of years earlier as what was called the senior organizer on the national team. I was assigned in Connecticut running a multi-union campaign. And in those days, we still had pagers before cell phones, 2000. Um, and suddenly, as we're watching the TV screens, you know, literally my pager goes off and it says, you know, get next plane uh, to West Palm Beach, don't call headquarters, don't use your work card, get on a plane and land. We'll deal with it later. So literally that's what we did because one of, on the positive side of the national trade union movement in moments like this, on the positive side, um, I think we, we do respond like soldiers or field generals, depending on the moment, right? And I didn't hesitate. I literally like put down the pager, picked up a suitcase, you know, started calling airlines and drove to the airport and took a 4 a.m. flight to West Palm Beach the next morning. So when we landed there, I mean, it was actual chaos. Uh, it was the first time that we were having a Florida recount of which we're about to have 12 or 18 of them coming up on November 3rd. And truthfully, no one knew what was going on. So to make a long story short, uh, since Jacobin actually, with the with 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 the permission from Verso, published the chapter. You know, essentially, we land. There's no plan. No one's sure what to do. They immediately begin to send organizers who are used to organizing strikes, hard fought NLRB elections. You know, and they say, go collect affidavits um, in largely Jewish, retired Jewish, probably AFT member condo complexes, and. You know, we'd put up a notice saying lawyers coming to collect an affidavit that maybe you voted for the wrong person accidentally on the butterfly ballot in West Palm. And literally hundreds of people would be waiting in line um, to give us their affidavit. So it, it was immediately obvious that something was very wrong with the Florida election and that there were tens of thousands of people um, whose ballots were screwed up somehow. So we began to say, wow, people are angry and they're showing up in large numbers with like no, no strategy, no like working to get people to turn out. They were just turning out by the thousands to talk about what went wrong when they were trying to vote. And so, of course, the organizers were going back to the daily debrief each night and saying, hey, we got tens of thousands of people ready to take to the streets. There's all teams of us running these affidavit collecting operations condo complex by condo complex in Broward County and, and West Palm uh, County at that point, two counties. You know, there's all these reasons why we didn't want to do a protest yet would be the argument from the Gore campaign lawyers um, who were actually directing the brief and debrief of senior organizers from the trade union movement. And we were largely people staffing it at this point. Um, again, early to land, last to leave. Um, and, you know, eventually this becomes crazy um, because it's very clear that this is going to be, that there's a political context to what's going on. And the Gore campaign has this deep belief in something called the legal process and the law. The candidates, lawyers, and the National Democratic Party were forcefully agreeing that we should not have an image of protest. We should not be out in the streets. That would literally be a bad image for the Democrats, the idea of a protest. And then we hear this announcement as a, as a, as a point of debate that Jesse Jackson's gonna show up and do this big rally, which is the right decision, right? So literally I remember going into a meeting and saying, hey, I got a flyer in a condo complex that Reverend Jackson's coming to do a big protest. And so extreme was the position of the Democratic Party that we were forbidden from showing up at the Jesse Jackson rally and forbidden to mobilize people who were by the thousands in the condominium complexes wanting to go protest somewhere. Um, so just as a level of absurdity, we were literally not allowed to even turn people out for protests and were forbidden from doing so. That's the level at which the miscalculation on the part of the National Democratic Party and the Gore campaign uh, was existing in real time in Florida in 2000. Meanwhile, within a couple of days, the Republicans start holding these little rallies, right? Like little rallies that start to grow. And now the Republicans are actually holding bigger and bigger rallies in Florida with signs that say, Gore loser, uh, don't let Al Gore steal the election. So they literally start to frame the narrative in a way that we now experience Trump to be kind of a professional narrative framer, right? But this is 2000. 
And some of the same people, by the way, not just three justices on the U.S. Supreme Court, including the most recent one, illegitimately posted in her seat. These people were all involved in this litigation, by the way. Literally, they were involved in the Republican Party's litigation in Florida in 2000. So they're a little experienced at this. So they were framing the narrative early on and capturing TV coverage, as we know they can, with small little protests, with clever signs. Um, and we were being forced to be silent and have no protests. And at one point, you know, it got to the point where we were saying, those of us who were staffing this operation, listen, you know, it's one thing, I mean, for Jacobin audience, this may, may make people realize how naive I was in uh, the year 2000. I really expected at that point that the leadership of the national AFL-CIO would break um, with the Democratic Party leadership on strategy. I would say that was my coming of age moment in the U.S. trade union movement where I realized actually, um, yeah, uh, they're going to actually take orders from the Democratic Party and they're not going to give them. And in my view of the universe, you know, I've been working with some really radical and progressive unions up until then. Um, I didn't quite have the national picture at that point. I had a very progressive view of the trade union movement. Um, and of course, we were going to split with the Democratic Party, right? I mean, I came from unions in Connecticut who foundationally would split with the Democrats almost all the time, just as a, like a reflexive habit, you know, to teach the members how to fight both sides. So uh, when our when the organizers began protesting in meetings, we were like protesting in meetings and saying, we need to hold direct action, we need to hold street theater, we need to get these tens of thousands of retired trade union members from New York State on our Southern Florida voter lists into the streets. Um, uh, and as I tell in the chapter, um, about the eighth time I said that in front of Al Gore's lawyer, they threatened to send me home. And I begged them to send me home, which they wouldn't, um, because the operation was too important at that point. But yeah, so in essence, we, lo we lost the Florida recount. I mean, the Florida recount um, was Al Gore's to lose. Um, and the Democratic Party made, it felt to me on the ground at the time, like they made every effort possible to actually lose that election by relying on something called a legal strategy and the legal process and by eschewing protest. Right. To underscore that point a little bit, you write that by putting their faith in the legal process, the Gore campaign and the National Democratic Party leadership handed the election that Al Gore won to George W. Bush. And you frame it as the difference between a political fight versus a legal fight. And you alluded to this a moment ago, but I think it's really important to underscore that actually the right did understand that they should fight on the terrain of politics rather than in the sort of like inner chambers of the halls of power. And so you also say that this was a structural test for the radical right in a way, and that we're still dealing with the sort of lingering consequences of the right's decision to fight on the terrain of politics in 2000. Can you explain exactly what the right uh, got up to? I mean, they, they, they chose to treat this like a political fight. Now, the tactics that they used weren't ones that we would emulate. In many cases, they were, you know, threatening and intimidating people. And we would obviously opt for a sort of, um, you know, uh, sort of a wholesome militancy, as it were. But, um, but still, they, they, they made that fateful decision. Can you talk about the legacy? of that, the implications of that, and what that looked like. Yeah. And they didn't just make it once. I mean, if we if we fast forward, by the way, to the 2018 election cycle, I mean, I'm going to argue that there's been no evidence yet that they've learned, that the National Party has learned this lesson yet. There were three races where serious irregularities and serious voter suppression had taken place just in 2018. Georgia's gubernatorial race, Florida's gubernatorial race, and Florida's U.S. Senate race. And immediately... Um, I jumped on the phone to the vestiges of everyone I'd met in Florida to say, you got to right away prepare people to break with the Democratic Party because they're going to demand that all three of them surrender very quickly. And if they fight, they'll win. And it was days before the National Party basically rang up all three of them and said, you need to just pull out. We're not going to back you. Like, we're not, we're not going to back you contesting the elections that you won. So that's 2018. So I, I just want to give an 18-year view. Like, so far, the indicators are the party hasn't learned this lesson, sadly. They're about lawyers and process and what looks, what looks um, I don't know, sort of grown up or something in their mind. One of the biggest challenges that we face dealing with a Democratic Party that frustrates all of us all the time, right, um, is their understanding of power. 
I mean, what separates a left a leftist in part from a liberal is like our understanding of power, right? Uh, so for me, as a trade union organizer on the ground in Florida, I understood very quickly um, that we needed one we needed to get people in the streets because for every even for every legal decision that's made in this country, there's a political backdrop to it, right? Roe v. Wade, when it came about, um, didn't come about uh, because some smart, clever case wound its way to the Supreme Court. It came about through, you know, a generation of organizing built on the back of the civil rights movement, the trade union movement, et cetera. We had political power that then shaped decisions the court would make. So that seemed very it seemed, I would say, very obvious to the organizing team in Florida that we needed to frame a narrative. We needed to create hell. I give a lot of examples in in the book chapter that um, Jacobin ran. An example, I mean, at one point, someone just said to me, brainstorm all the things that we should be doing. And I literally just took a marker to a flip chart and began psychotically writing every piece of tactical warfare that we could be engaging in in Florida. And they're like, OK, stop. And we're like... Put together a bus that chases Catherine Harris, who was the uh, Secretary of Elections. Um, surround her house. Um, put together uh, delegations of telegenic senior citizens with walkers chasing the Secretary of State. Put together a team of black, like, it, it, literally, I mean, you start going on tactical warfare, if you're an organizer, you can just start flip charting every single thing that we should be doing to not just shift the narrative, but to shift the power dynamic of that fight. Um, and the Democratic Party, I don't think it's just a willingness to not exercise power. I feel like a lot of them didn't quite understand it. Like they were really arguing it'd be better um, if we behaved like their view of what a proper citizen is or something and that the law would just work. So I think the reason why in the more recent piece I put in the part about the radical right using Florida as a structure test is because they pulled off a coup. So that to me is a structure test. Like they were trying to figure out what could they get away with in Florida? How much could they get away with in Florida? And that that would set the stage for things like the coming Tea Party. And what were they going to get, or the Patriot Act, or what were they going to get away with uh, without being challenged by, oh, the other political party that's meant to be the counterweight to them, which would be the National Democratic Party, uh, which anyone listening to this knows is, you know, not an effective counterweight. It's like planning strategy uh, in a total vacuum of understanding how power and power structure analysis works. Um, and the Democrats either don't understand power or choose to lose. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm going to frame the choice because that's what it was in Florida. And I concluded that they chose to lose. That, that not, uh, not creating a constitutional crisis, and by the way, I have a piece tomorrow where I'm calling the question on the need to create many constitutional crises to avoid larger ones. Um, so in terms of like what the Democrats, like what we need to be prepared for people to demand, uh, it's going to be something very different than we did in either, even in 2018, right, in those three races. I mean, what's fascinating, just one more thing going back to 2018 about how much the Democrats don't understand power, is when that, when that situation in Florida unfolded in 2018, where it was very clear that the current governor of Florida really didn't win, neither did this U.S. Senate candidate, if you fairly counted ballots and you um, took, they had rejected all these people on signature lines, right? And if you actually brought them back in and demanded a recount with the signatures and let people prove it was their signature, I think those two candidates won, right? And the Democrats wouldn't allow that to happen because that was going to be like too contested and the right wing was going to fight really hard. So they said, stand down to the candidates. And when I was on the phone with people in Florida, it's 2018, staying on the topic of power and how politics shape legal decisions even and outcomes and the political context of the work. And I said to folks in Florida, if you don't fight this now, it's going to have really dire consequences, right? Who the governor is and who the sitting U.S. senator is. Um, and people in Florida said, no, but, you know, it's it's going to wind up being OK because we won this ballot initiative overwhelmingly about um, in, uh, formerly incarcerated folks and felon reenfranchisement. And I said to them that day, if you think that you surrender who the governor of the state is, that that law is going to be implemented, you're smoking crack. And I got into a big argument on the phone with a bunch of local organizers in Florida that I wish I had recorded that that law was not going to get implemented without a massive fight and that the governor was going to gum up that law even. And they kept saying, no, but it passed overwhelmingly. <laughs> I was like, 
it doesn't matter if it passed overwhelmingly. There's going to be a million roadblocks in the way of actually letting 1.4 million former felons uh, re-enter the voting process. And as we know, that in fact has happened, right, the whole time. And that's because of who the governor was. So even in 2018 in Florida, the National Democratic Party, uh, you know, forcing um, Gillum, Andrew Gillum at the time, to surrender his race. And, and how do you, you say, how do you force him? Well, you tell them that we're going to withdraw all your financial support, we're going to withdraw all the lawyers, and we're going to withdraw everything. And then you're going to be left there on your own trying to have this fight. It's a hard fight to have alone, right? And in neither of these scenarios did the National Trade Union Movement say, we're going to disagree with uh, the Democratic Party from 2000 to 2018, and we're going to fight like hell uh, because our members' lives are at stake. That decision keeps not being made, and that needs to change. Now, okay, all of this is uh, very dispiriting for those of us who are thinking about... Uh, it's dispiriting history in its own right, but it's dispiriting history in thinking about how, it, how you know, what, what we should guess that uh, the power brokers of the Democratic Party will do uh, starting, you know, this Tuesday on Election Day. Um, so I guess there's there's two questions that you've raised here. I mean, one is is that correct that that's what's going to happen uh, Tuesday? That are, are we going to see some kind of a repeat of like Florida 2000, Florida 2018, and everything you just laid out from the part of the point of view of the Democratic Party? But also, uh, what is your sense of where the labor movement is at, uh, given these questions. Uh, I mean, you're obviously making the case that the labor movement needs to be doing something differently from from the Democratic Party. The labor movement needs to be pushing the party to do the things that it should be doing anyway. Um, and then I guess also a third thing is that the the difference between, you know, say 2000 and now, a, a difference between 2000 and now is that there is a left in this country and it's very small and it's very nascent, but, uh, you know, it's it's finding its sea legs. And uh, does, the, does that newly reborn, uh, you know, or, or struggling to be born or however we want to characterize it left, uh, does it have anything to, uh, any particular role that it should be playing in whatever happens after Tuesday? Yeah, I actually think there is some good news here. Um, because the, the movement that began in 2012 in Chicago with the Chicago Teachers Union and the rebirth of the strike movement in this country and the, the exercise of the idea of collective power um, is actually growing. And there's a broad recognition at the regional, state, and local level, I would say, um, that we can't rely on the decisions of the national um, unions at this point, because it's it's unlikely that they'll be able to break in a serious way, or it's unlikely that they will choose to break in a serious way with the decisions that the Biden-Harris team are making, just given how embedded those relationships are and the consultants are and the whole like consultant industrial complex that surrounds all of them. But it's very possible that a lot of local unions and a lot of local trade unionists and we already know this, are getting ready to throw down in a way that's unprecedented. And that's important. And that is strategic. And there's really serious opportunities because really smart people have been thinking this through. And that does not include me. I mean, a lot of really smart people have been thinking through all these scenarios and what needs to happen. So let me just play a couple of them out. If, if the scenario we imagine happens, it's that Biden and Harris win the national popular vote, um, but they lose, right, on the back of the electoral college system. And that and they don't even and maybe they don't even lose, but they actually um, if if Trump declares he's president, uh, you know, at midnight um, on November 3rd, by all the votes counted as of right now, which we know is a sham. There's five states, at least, where this is going to really play out. And it's um, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, Michigan and North Carolina. If you think about the trade union movements in those places or the trade union movements close to those states, there's really strategic direct action that's going to have to happen in key states, in electoral swing states. Um, and in, in most of those states, if not all of them, we've actually got a resurgent movement. North Carolina has a newly resurgent um, teachers union statewide, which is like, whew, just in time, we hope. Um, and there's a lot of really good base building going on in North Carolina and the faith-based community as well, right? I mean, the black church and trade unions uh, could, could play a serious role in North Carolina. Um, Wisconsin, we know things are a little bit more challenged right now in terms of the decimation of a lot of the progressive forces. But in Pennsylvania, Florida, and Michigan, all these are key swing states 
where where literally the actions on the part of the Democratic. So there's in in four of those states, take out uh, Florida. So Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina. This is the scenario why local unions and local trade unionists matter so much. Forget the national decision making. The way the way the process works, which is so Byzantine and convoluted, ultimately by December 8th, the safe harbor day, it's called under the U.S. Constitution, is when the Democratic governor has to certify who won their state. And then there's a second thing about the Democratic governor certifying the electors, right? Because we think we're voting for a president. We're actually voting for these things called electors, totally Byzantine. What we have to do in the four states I just mentioned, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, and Michigan, there's Democratic governors who technically under the Constitution are the people who send these numbers in. There are Republican state legislatures in those states. They're going to try and, if, if, if we're predicting this correctly, they're going to try um, and put a stranglehold on their governors and try and quickly start passing laws and, and gum up the works of their Democratic Party governor. And what we must, as local trade unionists and local progressives, we must fight in the streets really hard to say that if the preponderance of votes as they're coming in, whenever they're coming in, show that Biden won that state, the Democrats have to behave in a way that thus far in my life experience, only the Tea Party and the Republican right wing has behaved, which is you got to act and you act decisively. And you got to ignore the noise coming potentially from your Republican legislature who's going to try and do something different. So it's going to take massive political power at a state-based level to make Democratic Party governors do the right thing. And that has serious potential because if we can hold the line, surround the state houses, give the gut, like have massive turnouts and give the governors of those states the clearance, even as up against directions they might be getting from the National Party or Biden's people or whoever it is, like we got to have a serious enough direct action in the streets program and also like lobbying legislative who's got the connection, maybe the building trades guy in this state's got the right connection into the governor's office in Michigan, whoever it is, like the power analysis that will allow and even even the National Building Trades Union has endorsed Biden-Harris, right? So even I say. So in some of these very important states, trade unions hold really important relationships, state level ones with those governors um, and rank and file activists need to make their movement happen in those key swing states and play out those fights because those are basically the states in serious play could play out in some other states. But that's just an example of why it's very important to understand the tactical warfare and the power analysis that's going to play out and the very central and important role that local trade unionists and local unions and local labor councils and state councils can play in forcefully making Democrats do that which they need to do, which is defend democracy. Before you get to the question about this newly reborn left, um, do I mean, you alluded earlier to wheels already being in motion in, in some parts of the trade union movement to do exactly the kind of thing you're talking about. So it sounds to me like you don't think that it's somehow too late. We're too close to the 11th hour for unions to play a really key role in, in ensuring that the election isn't stolen. No, 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 no. I, I really don't. I think I can just say in California where I'm aware of some of the discussions that are taking place, there's tremendous discussions taking place just in the teacher unions alone about the plans to hit the streets, right? We Like I was getting orders today about where we're supposed to be um, on November 4th. So the discussion here in a bunch of quarters began at least several weeks back when a whole bunch of us said um, in a big conference call, we can't wait to make the direct action plans until on election day, right? We don't wait until election day to make the plan of where you're going and with who and why and what armor you're bringing. You gotta make that plan now. Um, so there's a lot of planning that's already happening and still happening. And a lot of the progressive trade union councils and a lot of progressive union locals are a place to turn um, to get some good direction to figure out where you need to be on the 4th of November, um, if not the 3rd, but definitely on the 4th. I think it's going to be the 4th of November, realistically, right? That's going to be the first massive action. If if Biden doesn't do what crazy pollsters think he's going to do, which is sort of overwhelmingly win all these swing states. Uh, sorry, I don't see it. Hope I'm wrong. Um, but so it is not too late. Um, and making a demand that your national union break with the party is one demand that local trade unionists are actually making right now. There's resolutions being passed. There's letters being signed. 
There are, yeah, let me say that again, there's resolutions and letters being sent off to national leadership demanding that they break with the party on strategy. Um, there's calls for uh, strikes at a local level. Um, and there, and again, I don't want to underestimate that even though as a progressive and a left movement, we understand the trade union movement has been beaten to a smithereen for 50 years running, we're still the politically strongest entity in most states. It's just still true at the state level, let alone nationally. In terms of the progressive tent, I mean the left tent. So we cannot underestimate the power that local level and state level trade unionists can play in literally forcing the Democratic Party to do something that we don't think that they're ready to do on their own. We've got to create the social conditions in the streets that force the Democratic Party to act in ways that they will not do unless they are forced to do it from a ground up movement. And it also occurs to me as you're explaining all of that, that the story that you tell in that piece that we ran uh, about Florida is that there, it was a small number of Republican operatives who were the ones who really changed the uh, changed the momentum of the whole thing, right? Like it was a sort of like militant minority of these guys. You know, it was the Brooks Brothers riots. I mean, it was like well paid, well dressed. You know, white dude Republicans. You, you describe them as like looking like Nazis. Uh, you know, they're they're not they're not representative of some massive constituency. But all it took was like the a, a pretty small number of like hardcore organizers and and people who were in the streets who, who were willing to uh, you know, to, to fuck shit up, who were, uh, who changed the, literally changed the outcome of the election. And so the same could be said again, as Megan said, like not, not to, not to intimidate people, not to, not to big be, have beefy guys who are going to beat your ass or whatever, but like, you know, a, a relatively small number of trade union activists who are like fighting to, uh, protect the, 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 the small D democratic outcomes of, of this election, uh, could play a really decisive role in, in how it, how it shakes out. Yeah, they could play a decisive role, but I think on our side, sadly, uh, Micah, on our side, it usually takes more than their side, right? And we've even seen that we've even seen this playing out, honestly, in like reopen school versus not reopen school debates. I mean, literally, uh, like in California, for sake of argument, like 87% of parents are actually siding with teachers' unions about not sending their kids back to school, and like five right wing paid for by charter school people hold a protest and get like a, a headline that they want their schools open when actually it's just not true. So what you said is true, but I just want to be real about the power analysis. The burden on our side is for much greater numbers. doesn't mean overwhelming, but like the Brooks Brothers guys, I also want to just unpack them. They were, they turned out to all be well-dressed, short-haired dudes who were uh, like chief of staff and senior aides, like members of the Republicans in Congress. The ones who scared me actually though, and who looked like Nazis were the Christian militants, which is a formal organization of white supremacist Christians who were chasing me into my hotel one night. So um, who, who was scary um, were actually neo-Nazis and they were there too. And, that, and they're gonna be, they're gonna be there this time too. So, I mean, I think that there's a role for, there's a certain kind of role for a certain kind of member of our trade union movement who's who's good at doing picket line defense, who's got to get ready to do protecting counters, balloters, uh, the integrity of the ballots, surrounding the buildings, making sure the Proud Boys don't get them. Uh, you know, they're going to, you know, like we've seen these incidents in Boston and California and elsewhere that they've, they've been burning, you know, drop boxes, right? The right wing, like burning ballots. I mean, they're going to stop at nothing. So having like a civil defense team that's ready to do defense work. That's one sort of team that we need on the trade union side. We need a second team who's holding relationships to governors and legislatures, who's gotta be working that program. And we've gotta put, we've got a working coalition with the broader left and put as many human bodies in the street as humanly possible and do our work in a coordinated, smart way. Well, I think when you say that we need to get our people out in the street in mass numbers, because that's the burden on our side, it's also worth noting that we have lots of socialists and progressives that we didn't have before, in large part because of the Bernie Sanders campaign and sort of the general growth of an organized socialist movement in the United States. But the question that remains is, you know, a lot of those people are very disillusioned with Joe Biden. And so it's not it's not going to be necessarily easy to convince all of those people that they need to get on the streets and join that struggle, given the fact that, you know, like, for example, during the last debate, I watched Joe Biden, we all watched Joe Biden actually soft pedal on a public option. I mean, he was really kind of narrowing the criteria for the public option that he wanted to pursue. This is well short of a Medicare for all, the thing that energized all of these 
these, you know, progressives and socialists to kind of get involved in a burgeoning movement. So what's the case to make to people who are not enthusiastic about Joe Biden, about a Joe Biden presidency for why it's critical to be out in the streets alongside trade unionists, taking on not only that, you know, incredible responsibility, but also a great deal of potential danger um, alongside people who are fighting for ostensibly for for a Joe Biden administration, which we're not particularly, you know, enthusiastic about. Yeah. Um, super fair question. Uh, and I think, sadly, it's a pretty straightforward answer, which is, um, you know, I, I couldn't be, I could, I represent, uh, the, the, the marked enthusiasm gap about the current, uh, team that I'm voting for, right? Um, meaning Biden and Harris, uh, they were probably last in order of last if I had to work my way up through the 29 million people who were running at one point. Um, on the other hand, as a trade union organizer, um, I got to say the difference between having people appointed to the National Labor Relations Board who are fair um, has everything to do with whether or not we have the capacity to help tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions. The 67 percent of Americans who in poll up to poll said they'd like to have a union aren't going to get into a union to rebuild a stronger, more robust left and then win Medicare for all unless we have a restoration of basic labor law um, and better appointees at the National Labor Relations Board. We're not, we're talking about, you know, are they gonna keep putting huge numbers of kids in cages um, in ICE detention centers um, and literally just killing people? Are we gonna keep repeating? We keep seeing the repeated, like stepping on the neck of black people. And then when we go to protest that, shooting us, like I think there's a pretty serious case to be made that dragging, you know, Biden and Harris across the line is in the interest of every leftist in this country that's serious about making change. Because in fact, just as we were talking about the social conditions that can shape legal decisions, the social conditions under which we take to streets, we run strikes, we run fights to win a real healthcare system like Medicare for all, um, it's going to matter a lot if we, when we go out to protest, whether or not they've got the U.S. military called out on us, aiming guns at us and shooting us as the marshals literally went by Trump to shoot someone, right? The, uh, the brother in, they shot to death in Oregon. I mean, the, this difference of violence, just raw violence that they are aiming at black people, Latinos, for starters, and then all of us more generally, the question of violence uh, when we attempt to do what we're going to have to do to win um, a, a free and well-funded and well-run national health care system is night and day. Um, if Trump and the forces behind Trump actually get back in that White House, we're going to be fighting to keep ourselves alive, not fighting for a Medicare for all system. And if we can drag Biden and Harris over the finish line um, and get them inaugurated uh, in January, then you know, uh, the reason why I just took part with a whole lot of people in something called strike school um, is because we're going to have to have a hell of a lot of strikes to force Biden and Harris to do any damn thing good. And we know that because we're we do understand power in the left and we understand that if Biden and Harris get in, it's just so that we can then begin to mobilize first mobilize people on the streets to force them to do that, which we are going to demand that they do, and then have the right to organize even more people in the sector that I'm, you know, in for life, which is the trade union sector. Um, I can tell you that the difference between having a fair election process in a National Labor Relations Board election uh, in the campaign that I write about in my new book, for example, in Philadelphia, like when we organized in 12 months, seven hospitals from the ground up, rank and file organizing, and one helped workers win amazing contracts that were life-changing in Philadelphia, that happened under the fair election rules that Obama put in too late, by the way. I mean, late in a second term, but then they were those were repealed right by the Trump people. And the Trump people put in these horrific people into every agency, including um, the Department of Labor and the National Labor Relations Board. And the difference uh, is night and day. Are we fighting to survive or fighting to build a better country? 
Um, and we need Biden and Harris in there so that we can fight and not be shot and murdered when we take to the streets to make them give us the national health care system and much more that we deserve in the Green New Deal and all of it. I, I also wouldn't want to add a, a sort of corollary argument, which I think you'll probably agree with to that, um, which I hope our listeners will take to heart, which is that I feel that we now are in like a, a special situation where we have sort of... Um, four different political phenomena occurring at once. One is the revived uh, uh, labor movement that you, you know, the sort of revived, you know, um, sort of militancy in the labor movement starting with the 2012 Chicago teachers strike and running through the, the teachers strike wave of 2018 and 2019. Another is the revived um, socialist movement and, and broader progressive movement that I alluded to earlier. Another is just the an incredible, um, the incredible revulsion with a sitting president. I mean, I do think that sometimes we tend to neglect the extent to which this is actually really unusual. <laughs> I mean, to put a really fine point on it, when Donald Trump, you know, was diagnosed with coronavirus, um, there was a uh, there was a mood in the air that was uh, very different from what you would expect from a normal president. And I think I'm being really euphemistic <laughs> about that, but you know what I mean? Like there is like a really strong rejection of the authority of the Trump administration that's actually quite unusual in American history. And the fourth is something that I, I think is really important to touch on, which is that if we have a situation where we have a difference between the popular vote total and the electoral college total for the third time in the uh, in the 21st century, um, I think that we're going to see more of a willingness to uh, challenge the legitimacy of that result because we've you know seen this a few times and because in the intervening years, the critique of the electoral college has grown and now 61% of Americans are saying that they want to abolish the electoral college. And so I think there's going to be less of a willingness to simply, um, you know, say the rules are the rules and that's that's how it's done. So, okay, those four things together are potentially leading us to a situation where we can actually have, um, you know, mass mass disruptive popular protests that could really make an impact in this moment. And I would argue to the socialists who are listening to this podcast who have, uh, you know, who don't like Joe Biden for good reason, um, that we have a responsibility to take advantage of that confluence of political phenomena, especially because um, the relationships that we're going to build during that struggle um, that's right around the corner are also going to be the relationships that we need to rely on the next, you know, like next year and the year after in a potential Biden-Harris administration um, for all the reasons that you said, Jane. Yeah. I completely agree with you. I mean, I think I think the four things that you outlined actually um, are totally relevant to this discussion. I mean, the only reason that I thought m maybe Trump could lose is COVID, to be honest, um, because, uh, you know, six months ago, the way that the mainstreamers report the economy and the numbers in the economy was like, things are going great, things are going great. Um, and you saw Trump's numbers holding steady for a long time and then COVID hit. And I began to dream that actually we could get the bastard out of there. Um, and I think that every one of us has to be committed to getting the bastard out um, immediately, like in the next week. And I think it is there is going to be civil unrest. Um, I think it is going to be very close in the swing states that I described from Florida to Wisconsin, Pennsylvania to right. It's not going to be close in those states. Um, but the convergence of the four things, revived socialist, revived trade union, like actual revulsion, I think you're right. I mean, I would say that neighbors were walking up to me and saying things at the moment he got um, COVID that I've never imagined them saying before. And you all can imagine what they were saying. Um, and I was like, wow, like the white lady down the street at the mailbox just like freaked out about how much she hopes that a cure is not found the next day. I'll just say that. Um you know, about uh, the president of the country. And it, it was like shocking to me. So I think you're right about the sort of revulsion. Um, it's going to take a serious strategic alliance that has a good understanding of power and power structure analysis to force the Biden and Harris team uh, into a number of things that we're pretty desperate for at this point, um, whether it's an end to fossil fuel addiction or a national health care plan um, or just a great jobs creation program. I mean, all of it. Right. So I I couldn't agree with you more. Well, let's hope that your uh, your doom and gloom predictions about what's going to happen next week uh, are are wrong. But uh, if in the case that you are uh, not wrong, let's hope you're right that these uh, forces can 
get themselves uh, together because uh, we can't, we can't, we cannot go on like this. I mean, for for uh, numerous reasons that that we that we've already gone over in this conversation. I mean, and we cannot go on not only for 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 you know the climate crisis and everything else, but like we have to put our foot down and like things like the the electoral college have never been popular institutions in America, but like we've never had the kind of upheaval that we need in order to, you know, put that disgust with the institution, you know, translate that into actual institutional change. And, uh, it's, it's going to be now or never, I think. So, uh, this is, this is our, our last shot here. It's a good shot. And I think by the way, like when, when you're all taken to the streets, um, to try and force the count to continue, I mean, look, the, the real truth is there's no question in my mind that, that, that Biden and Harris from the popular vote, there's no question about that. And there's not even a question that in the swing states that I just listed, in a fair election, Biden and Harris win it. It's that we're not having a fair election, right? And that's the role of street protest, is to like reinforce the idea that this has not been a fair process and we've got to make it fair. And while you're out there uh, at those protests, people should remember to bring clipboards and pens and start signing people up and gathering their names and building the movement that you're trying to build because there's going to be a lot of people in the street with you. So don't forget to collect names, phone numbers, cell phones, and information. And maybe a good way to do that, for example, hint, hint, is like to bring a petition that you type up that says, um, win, lose, or draw, we're done with Electoral College. We want majority rule, not minority rule. And start getting people to sign that petition. Um, and make sure that you get their you know, cell phone number and their email and, and use use the movement in the streets that it's going to take to set the election correct uh, to continue to build the movement. And I mean that literally, like you know many times I go to an action, people are like, wow, it was so great. There were like 5,000 people there and so many people I never saw before. And I go, great. Did you all have clipboards and checklists and petitions for people to sign their name to? Because if you just say, you know, sign my name if you're interested in building socialism, not effective strategy. If you say, do you want to be done with the Electoral College for once and for all? Sign this petition. Okay, you're going to get a lot of signatures and a lot of potential contacts to follow up with, not just to turn out for the next day's action, which you're going to need to do because this thing's going to go on for a little while, uh, but to end the Electoral College, which we must end. We have our marching orders from Jane McAlevey. Thank you so much, Jane. My pleasure. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd. You can always reach out to us at vastmajoritypodcast at gmail.com. And please, if you are not already subscribed to Jacobin, subscribe to our print issue or you can get an online version at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe. 